Thank you all for coming. Let's get started. My name is Gene Healy. I'm a vice president here at the Cato Institute, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome Senator Tim Kaine to Cato. Uh, before his current position uh, with the world's greatest deliberative body, uh, Senator Kaine has served as, among other things, mayor of Richmond from 1998 to 2001, governor of Virginia uh, from 2006 to 2010, chairman of the Democratic National Committee for two years, and since 2012, United States Senator from Virginia, <coughs> as well as a member of the Senate Foreign Relations and Armed Services Committees. Senator Kane is also uh, what used to be called an institutionalist, uh, one of those increasingly rare members of Congress who thinks it's important to defend the constitutional prerogatives of the legislative branch, even if that occasionally puts you at odds with the president of your own party. He holds to the old-fashioned view that Congress ought to stand and be counted, ought to actually vote on the wars that we're going to have. And in that, Senator Kane follows in a uh, long tradition of distinguished Virginians, among others, George Washington, who as president said, the Constitution vests the power of declaring war in Congress. Therefore, no offensive expedition of importance can be undertaken until after they have uh, deliberated on the subject and authorized such a measure. And of course, Virginia's James Madison, who believed that that provision of the Constitution was the part in which the most wisdom was to be found. Uh, that if uh, instead of granting the, the, the power to decide the question of war and peace to the legislature, if instead it was granted to the executive, he said, that the trust and temptation would be too great for any one man. Unfortunately, we've drifted so far in recent years from that constitutional wisdom that we're in danger of losing it entirely. This Saturday marks the one-year anniversary of the start of America's campaign against the Islamic State. But after some 5,000 airstrikes and with some 3,500 US soldiers on the ground, Congress has yet to hold an up or down vote on actually authorizing our latest war in the Middle East. I think that's something the country should really pause to think about. A year of unauthorized war is something that ought to be recognized as a milestone, a, a new low in the erosion of constitutional checks and balances. But sad to say, it's pretty, a pretty sure bet that this unhappy anniversary will get far less public attention than the clown car wreck of the first GOP primary debate tonight. And that's a shame. Uh, under our Constitution, war was, going to war was supposed to be difficult. It was some, supposed to be something that you deliberated. But over the last decade and a half, it's become all too easy to drift into it without any serious public debate. That's in large part because two presidents in a row have transformed the 2001 Authorization for the Use of Military Force, or AUMF, into basically an all-purpose enabling statute for presidential wars. The resolution, the AUMF, which was passed three days after the 9-11 attacks and was principally aimed at Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, has become the central basis for President Obama's claim that he doesn't need any new authorization to wage war against ISIS. 
the Congress already had its vote nearly 14 years ago, the theory goes, and it's one Congress, one vote, one time. That's the administration's legal cover for a new war that's going to be carried out in at least two countries for what we're told is at least three years. And as Senator Kane has said, this is unacceptable. And we should be having a debate to significantly narrow the 2001 authorization as well. Amid a congressional war powers debate that's mostly been dominated by profiles and lethargy, Senator Kane has been absolutely tireless in trying to get his, his colleagues to live up to the most important responsibility the Constitution entrusts to them, the powers over war and peace. Please join me, join me in giving a warm welcome to Senator Tim Kaine. Hey, thank you, Gene. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, th thank you, Gene, and thanks to all of you. I, this is my first time to have a chance to come and, and talk at Cato, and I've been looking forward to it. It's an important topic, and this is an important organization. I, I kind of think of Cato like I think of the Congressional Budget Office. I, I sometimes use their wisdom to make my case, and I sometimes argue against them vociferously. And uh, having, having a, uh, a slant on policy issues that does not neatly align with the orthodoxy of either party, uh, the CBO does that on many occasions, but Cato is known for that as actually a rare thing and a good thing. And so, Gene, I appreciate the invitation to come and talk about this. Um, we are today uh, starting in the Senate. It started last week, the traditional August recess um, in Congress. And Congress is an interesting place because we like to take vacations like other Americans do, but few uh, few are legally required to take, to take a vacation. And, and Congress is actually required by law to take an August recess. Um, this was a part of a, a bill called the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1970. Uh, we are supposed to take off in odd-numbered years. The House is adjourned from the first Friday in August until the Tuesday after Labor Day, and that is a legal mandate. There is an exception in the statute. The exception says that the mandated recess, quote, shall not be applicable if on July 31 of such year a state of war exists pursuant to a declaration of war by Congress. And again, the, the, the mandated August break is not applicable if a state of war exists pursuant to a declaration of war by Congress. Now that provision from the 1970 Reorganization Act makes perfect sense. I mean, Congress shouldn't go out for a mandatory 30-day vacation when the nation's at war. It's not right that American troops should be putting their lives at risk thousands of miles from home while Congress takes a mandated one month off. The Congress that passed this bill in 1970 during the Vietnam War, they had an expectation about how serious war was and about how Congress, the institution charged with declaring war, would treat such a serious obligation. Well, today we're starting on our one-month adjournment with a nation at war. As Gene said, this Saturday, the 8th of August, marks one year since President Obama began a bombing campaign in northern, in, against the Islamic State in northern Iraq to protect the Kurdish region around Erbil and Mount Sinjar. In the past year, about three to 30, a growing number, now about 3,500, members of the U.S. military have served in Operation Inherent Resolve. Many from Virginia, there's a carrier strike group, the Roosevelt Strike Group, that is over 
deployed in the theater now. Um, about 5,000 airstrikes, as Jean mentioned, and these, uh, these U.S. servicemen and women are <clears throat> carrying out special forces operations, doing airstrikes, training and equipping the Iraqi military, the Kurdish Peshmerga, and then freedom fighters in Syria who are battling against ISIS. We have made major gains. I just came back from Iraq, Kurdistan, Kuwait, uh, Turkey, right on the Syrian border within the last month. And I will tell you this, we have made major gains against ISIL, especially in northern Iraq because of the partnership with the Kurds, and now more recently in northern Syria also because of the partnership with Syrian Kurds. But the threat that's posed by ISIL definitely continues to spread in the region and beyond. The wars cost $3.2 billion, American taxpayer dollars, about $9.5 million a day. And seven American service members have lost their lives in connection with Operation Inherent Resolve. Recently, if you just you know, go by what's in the paper, we've heard that the administration has plans to expand it in kind of incremental ways, but ways that are pretty important because they're not just expansions of degree, they're really expansions of kind. So the president has now authorized, we see, the ability of the United States to take military action against the Assad regime in Syria if the Syrian military takes steps against the, the opponents, the trained moderates that are fighting ISIL in Syria. And, and that is likely to happen. And then we will be in military conflict with the Syrian military. We're expanding our coordination with Turkey in the mission this morning. First drone strike from, uh, uh, from the Turkish uh, base at Injerlik in Syria was announced. And uh, we're even hearing rumors, although the administration is sort of denying this, rumors are something that I actually think would be a good idea if it was declared, it was part of a declared operation, of a potential humanitarian safe zone inside Syria on the Turkish border that would be jointly protected by Turkish ground forces and American air assets to allow refugees in Syria, whether they're fleeing Bashar al-Assad, ISIL, or cholera, a safe haven to come to since the surrounding countries have been so overrun with refugees, it's difficult for them to take more. We've had testimony. Gene was, uh, was, was optimistic when he said, you know, the president has talked about this maybe being a two or three year engagement. We've had testimony by military leaders in, in terms of the threat of ISIL at hearings where they've said this could go on easily for 10 years. But while the war is expanding, and we've got these troops that are risking their lives far from home, and as we prepare to go on the one-month vacation anyway, there is a tacit agreement of both parties, both chambers to avoid, and, and both branches, executive and legislative, to avoid really serious discussion and authorization of this war. The president maintains that he can conduct this war without authorization from Congress. I think the legal claim that I can do this because of the 9-11 authorization is ridiculous. The president waited more than six months after initiating this military action to even send a draft authorization to Congress. And I'll say here, I'm a supporter of the president, and I think the U.S. military should be taking action against ISIL. And I met with President Barzani in Erbil, and the first thing he said to me a month ago was, you tell President Obama thank you. If he had not started this bombing campaign in August, we wouldn't be here now. There wouldn't be a Kurdistan in northern Iraq now. So this is not about not supporting the need for military action. It is about how military action is supposed to commence. The president waited for six months to send the authorization to Congress, and the White House has not pushed us to do anything with it. 
But as weird as the president's behavior is in terms of establishing this precedent of executive overreach, which Madison saw, and that's why Madison drafted the war powers allocation as he did, congressional behavior has been even more unusual. The, though vested with the sole power to declare war pursuant to Article I of the Constitution, Congress has refused to meaningfully debate or vote, debate or vote, not just vote, debate or vote, with respect to this war against the Islamic State. And this is a Congress that is quick to criticize this president for executive action. Oh, you've overreached by doing executive things on immigration. You've overreached by doing executive things in terms of fixes to the Affordable Care Act. But this is one area where, no, we're not going to sue the imperial president over this. Uh, we're not going to criticize the imperial president over this. We're going to give a green light to the imperial president over this. Do it and do not come to us and do not ask us because we don't want to say anything about it. As far as our allies know, as far as ISIL knows, and sadly, as far as our troops know, Congress is indifferent to this. If they look at what we've done in a year, the only reasonable conclusion is that we're indifferent to it. I first introduced a resolution to force Congress to authorize this military action war under specific limitations the day after the president on September 10 faced the nation on TV and said we need to be taking military action against ISIL. It went precisely nowhere. Instead, what Congress did was Congress recessed before the midterm elections earlier than they had done since 1960 while a war was underway. Within days after the president went to the nation and said, we're at war and we've got to do this, Congress recessed before the midterm election like seven weeks early. Um, but eventually, the, the resolution I put in did get a hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in December, and it got a, a vote. Now, sadly, it was a partisan vote, but the vote was to authorize military action under limited circumstances. The Republicans all voted against it. It still passed. We were in majority. And they had a reason I can understand. They said, look, we're about to take over the majority in the Senate. We would rather take this issue, take ownership of this issue, and do something with it. It's mid-December. We're not going to vote for it, but we're going to get right to it as soon as January 3rd comes around. Well, January 3rd came around, and then the argument was, well, you know, the president had sent us an authorization. And then the president sent an authorization in mid-February. And then the argument was, well, we've got to worry about Iran now. And it's now been six months since the president has sent the authorization to Congress. And again, virtually nothing is done has been done. To try to prod the new Senate under the new majority, Senator Jeff Flake and I introduced a, a war powers resolution in June, June 8, two, 10 months from the day of the start of the war. And we made it bipartisan and because we wanted to show that we could reach a bipartisan consensus. It, we had talked to all of our colleagues on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We gathered their intel. We didn't, we didn't attempt to solve everyone's concern or problem. But we attempted to do a good faith bipartisan version that would be then the subject of amendment, obviously. And we pushed, but in the two months since we've introduced it, we've had a few discussions and closed sessions in the Senate Foreign Relations Commission, but otherwise silence anywhere else outside of the... Uh, of our committee has been silent in the Senate. So, what has one year meant? Well, to our institutions, one year of war against the Islamic State has transformed a president who was elected in part because of his early opposition to the Iraq War into an executive war president, uh, maybe a perpetual war president. One year of war against ISIL has stretched the 2001 authorization for use of military force 
that was passed to defeat the perpetrators of September 11 far beyond its original meaning or intent. In fact, I would argue that the Bush and Obama um, interpretations of the 2001 authorization actually are 180 degrees different than what was intended because, Gene, I'm sure you know this, but I don't know that everybody does. There was an authorization that the Bush administration tried to get Congress to pass right after 9-11 that said we give the president the ability to take action against nations or organizations that want to harm the United States. It was a, it was a blanket all-purpose authorization. And even in the aftermath of 9-11, Congress was smart enough to say, hold on a second. We're not going to give you a blanket war authority. We're going to vote that down and only approve the more narrow authorization that says you can take action against the perpetrators of 9-11. But the administration gloss that the Bush administration put on this, that the Obama administration has continued and even expanded, basically has transformed the 9-11 authorization today into exactly what the Congress rejected two days after the 9-11 attacks. One year of war has shown to all that neither Congress nor the President feels any obligation to follow the 1973 War Powers Resolution, which requires that the President cease any unilateral executive-initiated war within 90 days unless Congress votes to approve it. That statute is now completely shredded, uh, and, and no one wants to follow it or even pay attention to it anymore. And finally, one year of war has demonstrated that Congress would rather hide from its constitutional duty to declare war than to have a meaningful debate about whether and how the United States should militarily engage against the Islamic State. Here's an irony. The one-year anniversary of the war against ISIL precisely coincides with this incredibly energetic and vigorous congressional effort to challenge U.S. diplomacy with respect to the Iranian nuclear agreement. What does it say? What does it say about Congress or about our institutions generally when you see congressional indifference to war but energetic congressional desire to challenge diplomacy? What does that say? Strangely, all this is happening while there is a broad bipartisan support for the military action against ISIL. I would venture that three-quarters of members of both houses would believe that the U.S. should be engaged in military action against ISIL under some circumstances, and there's difference on the details, obviously. There's also strong international support against ISIL. Sixty nations are part of the coalition. The American public overwhelmingly favors action against the Islamic State about 65%, and, and the American public even more strongly believes that Congress needs to authorize that action nearly 80%. So what explains the, the conspiracy of silence for the last year? Well, last month we had a hearing, um, the confirmation hearing for General Joe Dunford, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, to be confirmed as the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Armed Services Committee where I serve. And um, I asked him, on behalf of not just Marines, but everybody that he'll lead, whether congressional action to finally authorize this war how, would, would be well received by our troops. And his answer to me kind of said it all, quote, I think what our young men and women need, and it's really all they need to do what we ask them to do, is a sense that what they're doing has a purpose, has meaning, and has the support of the American people. 
A debate in Congress by the people's elected representatives and a vote to authorize the most solemn act of war is how we tell our troops that what they're doing, what they're risking their lives for, has purpose, has meaning, and has the support of the American people. Otherwise, we're asking them to risk their lives without even bothering to discuss what the mission is, whether the mission is something we support. And, and can there be anything more immoral than that to order troops to risk their lives in support of a military mission that we are unwilling even to discuss? So one year in, Saturday is the anniversary, our service members are doing their jobs, but they're waiting on us to do ours. Um, how about that August recess thing? How about the, the 30 days on 30 day adjournment unless? How can we go on the recess with a war going on? Well, you know, that's actually pretty easy because the part of the statute that creates an exception for the, from the mandatory August recess only applies, quote, if there has been a declaration of war by Congress. Because we haven't even bothered to debate or vote or authorize this war in the year since it started, we are still entitled by statute to have a 30-day August adjournment. Let me conclude from my critique and offer what I think we ought to do. This is a topic I came to the Senate deeply interested in. The vote around the Iraq War in 2002, I was Lieutenant Governor of Virginia at the time. I was profoundly disturbed. I didn't have any of the intel. I, I don't know how I would have voted, because I didn't have what members of Congress had. But I was profoundly disturbed at that vote because I was listening to it on the radio. Some of you remember it was being broadcast live. And I was traveling around. I was in Williamsburg listening to it. And uh, it just struck me, wow, why are we having this debate two or three weeks before a midterm election? There was only about one senator who was standing on the floor saying, hold on a second. The timing on this is wrong. Remember, we didn't go into Iraq pursuant to that authorization until March. But the debate was pushed to two weeks before a midterm election, the traditional midterm where the president's party tends to lose. And it seemed to me to be entirely unkosher, if that's a word, to try to put a debate about war right in front of a midterm to try to affect the midterm outcomes. Hey, it was political genius. It did affect the outcome of the midterms. That was one of the best midterms that a president ever had two years in. But it was an entirely cynical exercise to time it in a way that was completely artificial. That got me really into this question of, well, I don't, I don't necessarily know what the answer should have been, but it's, there's, it's got to be done better than this. And so I came to the Senate um, uh, 10 years later, 11 years later, with a real passion about this issue that, frankly, nobody else really had. Pe people th think this issue is kind of a boring one, more understand now why it's important. Here's what I think we need to do. First, we have to do an authorization for this military action against ISIL. This is, in my view, an illegal war right now because I, there is not, Article 2 does not support a war unless it's in the imminent defense of the United States. So Article 2 does give the president power to, to take executive action to defend the United States or embassies or consulates, but we're be in the event of an imminent threat. But all the testimony has been that the threat to the United States is not imminent at this, so Article 2 doesn't cover it. And the authorization from 9-11 allowing efforts against the perpetrators of the 9-11 attack, ISIL didn't start till 2003. ISIL is, is fighting with al-Qaeda in a number of places, especially in parts of Syria. So to claim that the 2001 authorization covers this is specious in my view. 
So we need to do this authorization, either the version that Flake and I have, or clearly it would be amended or whatever. And I'm, I predict that we're going to do it. There will be a time come, and I'm sorry it hadn't come yet, where the collective either outrage of the American public or the shame of members of Congress over a war that's one year. Well, could it be two years? Could it be three years? Could it be five years? Going on without limit, without geographic limitation will compel Congress to act. There would also be another thing that I pray doesn't happen. We've lost seven service members' lives in connection with this mission. But if we lose one life, like Jordan lost with a pilot who was captured by ISIL and horribly tortured publicly, in view. If that happens, does anybody in here doubt that Congress will act within a day to authorize military action against ISIL? But why should we wait for that? Why should we wait for that? So we need to do the authorization in the short term for this war against ISIL. Second, we need to revise the 2001 authorization. Gene indicated that. It, it is now being interpreted as a blank check to allow war without geographic limitation, without temporal limitation. Administration witnesses to my questioning have blithely said that they thought that the war authorized by the 9-1401 authorization would easily go on another 25 or 30 years. We've got to revise the authorization to impose some significant limitations. It's, it's way too broad in some areas, but it's actually too narrow in some others. The whole question of military action against non-state actors is a thorny little question. And so we need to dig into that as we revise the O1AOMF. And the last thing we need to do is we've just got to give up on the War Powers Resolution in 1973 and rewrite it. Senator McCain and I have a bill called the War Powers Consultation Act, which would scrap the War Powers Resolution um, of 73 and then would do in a new uh, process for defining the procedure between the executive and legislature on war making. The act basically does three things. One, it defines what war is, which isn't so easy in the days of drones and cyber attacks and non-state actors. Um, second, it defines what consultation is. You'll hear a president say, well, I consulted with Congress about it. I remember once being on armed services and foreign relations and seeing something about uh, efforts against ISIL, and the president said, I've consulted with Congress. And I was like, well, I'm on both committees. I've never heard about this. Presidents can say, I called two committee chairs or three people I thought were friendly in Congress, and hence that's consultation. The act defines, sets up a permanent consultative committee, bicameral, bipartisan, and, and requires continuous dialogue between the executive and that committee over hot spots around the world. That is then defined as consultation. And the third thing that the act does is define voting procedures whereby Congress really would have to vote. We're not doing that under the, the War Powers Resolution now, but we need to get back to it. Senator McCain and I are working on this and trying to gather support, and it's not been easy, but 15 years of war under an open-ended 60-word authorization should have taught us something, and it is my hope that, uh, it is my hope that after a year of war, I, I would have thought we would have learned it by now, but after a year of an undeclared war, I hope that uh, people will come to their senses and start taking this more seriously. And with that, Gene, I appreciate the chance to come, and I'm glad to take people's suggestions or questions. Thank you, Senator Kane. We, we now have a little time for a uh, little bit of time for questions, uh, but I'm going to insist, as I always do, that they actually be questions. Uh, please don't, not that any of you would be, be that sort of Washington personality who uh, grabs the microphone and makes a speech. Uh, please raise your hand. Uh, I'll call on you, wait for the microphone, uh, state your affiliation if you think it's important, 
And uh, then please do make sure that what you have to say ends with a question mark. Uh, yes, sir, the gentleman in front here. Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, Mike Kurtzig, formerly of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, worked on the Middle East for quite a while. Would you explain to us why you have endorsed the Iran Treaty? I believe you have sure. said that. Uh, when so many others are voting against, or potentially vote against it, and there seems to be obviously a very strong debate. Thank you. It, absolutely. And there, yeah, there are many people I love who are against it, and there are many people I love who are for it. So why did I sign on? Uh, to cut to the chase, I think it is dramatically better than the status quo, dramatic, for the first 15 years and, and possibly thereafter. Um, some are supporting it because they think it's better than alternatives, and, and all alternatives are somewhat hypothetical. The status quo is not hypothetical. Here is the status quo. Punishing sanctions by the U.S. and the international community have deeply hurt Iran's economy but they haven't heard Iran's nuclear program. Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke to this at the UN in September of 2012. He said, look, seven years of international sanctions have really hurt the Iranian economy, but we've got to face the truth. It hadn't stopped Iran's nuclear program. Under punishing sanctions, Iran rocketed ahead to 19,000 centrifuges, 11,000 kilograms of enriched uranium, a heavy water facility to process weapons-grade plutonium, um, enrichment levels that were 20% and rising, and we had very limited inspections to determine really what was going on to have confidence about what else they might be doing. That is the status quo. With this deal for 15 years, the 19,000 centrifuges go back to 6,000 or less. The uranium stockpile goes to 300 kilograms, which is too little even for one weapon. The enrichment percentage goes from 20% to 3.6%. The Iraq facility is permanently disabled from producing weapons-grade plutonium. And we get very robust inspections for 25 years, and then after year 25, the additional protocol inspections that are required by the NPT. And those inspections not only will help us determine if Iran cheats, but the inspections also will give us the kind of intel we would need that if they cheat, we'll have much more likely to be successful in using military action to take out a nuclear weapons program. Um, successful military action depends on will, capacity, but intel is credibly important, and having some transparency into what they do will increase that. So because the deal, to me, seemed dramatically better than the status quo, that's why I support it. And I think if we walk away from the deal, I don't think that if we walk away from the deal, it's automatically war. I disagree with the way the president sort of said, it's this or war. I, I, don't, I wouldn't phrase it that way. But I would say this, the most natural consequence of walking away from the deal is Iran will go back to doing exactly what they were doing, racing ahead with a nuclear program. They were months away from crossing the nuclear threshold. They'll race ahead even faster. So it's either going to lead to them crossing the nuclear threshold or to an existential choice that we'd all have to make about whether we engage in military action to stop them. I think the deal significantly improves the status quo, and that's why I came out for it. In the back uh, there. You've mentioned both our partnership with the Kurds and our cooperation with Turkey. As recently <laughs> as last week, the Turkish Air Force dropped hundreds of bombs on Kurdish on the Kurdish PKK inside Iraq, 
and in response, the PKK carried out suicide attacks against the Turkish military. Can we, in good faith, maintain an alliance with both the Kurds and Turkey? Um, and let's let's add an additional complicator. It's not as if the Kurds are monolithic. The Turkey is one of the most uh, one of the principal supporters of the uh, KRG uh, in Iraq. So Turkey has very strong relationships with the Kurds that we are partnering with in northern Iraq. Um, and 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 President Barzani was talking to me about that when I was there a month ago. So. Um, this is a very, very important question. When you look at Turkey, who, that has not been a partic particularly helpful partner against ISIL. Now, to give Turkey credit, they've been a huge partner in helping Syrian refugees. Uh, Turkey is now the largest shelter of refugees in the world. We've got to give them their humanitarian props for doing that and doing it well. But they've not been that great a partner in the battle against ISIL. When they suddenly say, oh, okay, now you can start using the Injurlik Air Force Base for drone strikes and military missions, and we want to cooperate with you, you kind of have to ask, hmm, okay, what changed the calculation? Was it a realization that ISIL was more dangerous? Was that the, was that the change in the calculation? Or was it a realization, wow, the U.S. is partnering a lot with the Kurds in northern Syria and achieving success in pushing ISIL around even near Raqqa, their home city. So I have, I have some deep concerns about this, but what I will say is, for, for about the couple of weeks since I got back, I've been so into the Iran issue that I haven't sat down and, and really gotten the briefing I need to kind of unpack, okay, Turks made a change in their calculation. I want to understand why, and I want to understand what the United States is going to do to continue to partner with those who have been with us. Uh, and, the, and again, the Kurds in northern Syria, we have partnered with them uh, near Kobani and in other areas, and they've been effective partners. So. I, I don't fully understand the change in the Turkish calculation, and I need to I need to dig into it and understand more. But I'm worried about it. Yes, sir, in the front row. Morning, Senator Kane. Good morning, Martin Moulton here. Um, what percentage of this war, illegal war on ISIS, as you say, um, is being funded by U.S. taxpayers, and where do you get the number of 60% in support of this war. Yeah. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that when people are presented with the fact of this ISIL having no threat to the homeland and they're given the cost up front that you get a 60% Sure, it's a, it's a recent Pew Center poll. Um, and I actually do find it credible. I, I know one state's politics, which is Virginia's. Now Virginia is, is a really good bellwether for national politics. Um, for a variety of reasons, but um, based on my travels around Virginia, the uh, atrocities committed by ISIL in the region, the atrocities committed by ISIL against American hostages, and the belief, which I share, that ISIL does pose a threat to the United States, it's just not the imminent threat that would trigger a presidential Article II power to take unilateral action. So it is a long-term threat and a threat of some significance to the United States and allies. So um, that is the... the um, uh, I, I, I believe both in my populace and in Congress, there's a belief we should be doing something. Now, I think Democrats generally want a role that is limited, uh, and limited for a good reason. Uh, the King of Jordan was recently with us, and he said, look, this isn't your fight, it's our fight. It's our fight against terrorism born and bred in this region, claiming falsely a mantle of authority from the religion of this region. 
if we band together to fight this threat, we need your help. But it can't be the U.S. against ISIL because that would be a recruiting bonanza for ISIL. Or it can't be the West against ISIL. That would be a recruiting bonanza. So I think the Democratic position, the president's position, tends to be more we should engage, but we should engage with limits so that it is clear that it is the region standing up against its own threat, and we have a right to expect them to do so. On the, on the dollar amount, we've just been tracking the expenditures through the DOD, and it's now up to the figure I used. I remember the 9.4 million a day, because we've been kind of tracking that. But the, um, let's see, the total cost is 3.2 billion. Uh, and it's all coming out of uh, a defense budget, um, and uh, most of it's coming out of the overseas contingency account, the account accounting trick part of the defense budget. Oh, you know, I don't know that question, and I should. Um, certainly, there's a 60-member coalition, but we're the, we're the biggest player. Um, on the airstrikes campaign, for example, 5,000 airstrikes, we, we've done, I'm sure, at least 85% of the air mission. Now, the ground troops, the Iraqi military, the Kurdish Peshmerga, tribal leaders and, and uh, militias in Anbar and Syrian opposition. They're the forces on the ground, and that, that would have a cost, too, and obviously they're, they're fighting valiantly, but uh, in terms of the dollar amount, I wouldn't know how to allocate the American percentage. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Senator Kane. I'm Danielle Bryan with POGO, the Project on Government Oversight. Danielle. And you uh, were bemoaning the lack of public discourse in the Congress about this important mm -hmm. issue. Yet you voted to close the Senate Armed Services Deliberations of the National Defense mm -hmm. Authorization yep. Act. And, and would this not be an opportunity to have this discussion? You said your partner in this is Senator McCain, who as chairman had said he would vote to open, or he would move to open those discussions if the majority of the committee had, had supported that. And you were one of the people who voted to close it. Yes. So I'd love you to um, consider, is that maybe an, uh, uh, something you would change your mind on so you could have this kind of discussion as, along with other important yeah, discussions? Yeah, no, a very, very good question. Let me tell you why. Um, let me tell you what is closed about the committee process when we write the annual defense authorizing bill and what is open and why I support portions being closed. Um, the one bill that passes every year in Congress is the defense authorizing bill, which is sort of the programmatic description of what the military does. Um, and, and it's passed 55 years in a row. Um, so I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and that's a bill that we do. Here's the way we do the bill. We have, we have subcommittees that work on the bill. Some are open, some are closed. We then put the bill into a full committee, and we have a closed process that usually takes about two days where we talk about the bill, where we propose amendments to the bill, where, where we vote on the amendments to the bill. Um, and we do that in a closed session. The votes on the amendments are not closed. Every amendment that is proposed is a recorded vote. And every amendment that's voted up or down, we are all accountable for our votes. So at the end of the day, the bill comes out, and you can see how every member has voted on every piece of the bill. But we close the deliberation. Why do we do it? So often in the meeting, uh, we talk about material that's classified. It just comes up again and again and again. And it comes up, sometimes there's a topic that is clearly a classified topic. But sometimes there's topics where the topic isn't necessarily classified as a topic, but we all have access to so much classified information that 
we will bring up classified information in discussing the topic as we're trying to make our decision. It would make it virtually impossible, in my view, to have that hearing and at every moment have to decide, let's see, am I about to say something that's classified? Do we need to now kick everybody out and move into the next room? We would have to do that in, a, in two days. We would have to do that 50 or 75 times. And we would have to always stop and think, wait, I'm about to say something. Did I learn this in a classified setting or didn't I? I'm on the Foreign Relations Committee too, which we get all kinds of classified information in. So if you have to stop and think before you say anything, did I learn this in an open or classified setting, and you have 26 members around the committee table that are all doing that, it would be virtually impossible. So what we've done is we've reached this, what we think is a workable compromise, where we talk and debate and share information without having to filter ourselves over the classified information, but we hold ourselves accountable on every amendment so that the public can see how we vote on every amendment. So that is the, the rationale. They, they do. Um, that I, I, I think our process is better. I really do. Uh, I'm going to take a moderator's privilege, yeah. if I could, to ask you a question about the dangers of a new authorization. Mm -hmm. uh, your colleague, Senator Corker, had this to say about uh, debating a new ISIS AUMF. He said, burning up legislative time, uh, burning up goodwill on something that's an intellectual exercise, maybe that's not so prudent. And on the one hand, I think that's kind of sad, a uh, sad reflection that, you know, we, we've we're talking about the most important thing Congress can do is an intellectual exercise. Uh, on the other hand, isn't there a case to be made on that uh, it might not be prudent to retroactively authorize uh, what the president's been up to for a year in the sense that, uh, you know, you, you've discussed how far uh, two presidents in a row have stretched the 2001 AUMF, uh, which doesn't even mention associated forces. And my recollection is that the uh, bill that came out of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the end of the last year had, had somewhat stronger limits than the bills that have come up since the presidents and, and others. Um, isn't there a danger, particularly uh, in, in a context when, when, as you said, the, the Republicans are making this ironic complaint that the President Obama hasn't been imperial enough isn't there a danger that the only authorizations that could pass at this point would, uh, to accommodate some of the Republican uh, complaints, have to delegate away further, uh, uh, more of Congress's war powers? And uh, you know, yeah. isn't there a corresponding risk on the on the other side that that uh, you know this will be another provision that this president and the next can stretch? Uh, as far as the last two presidents have stretched the 2001 AUMF? Well, there's a number of concepts in that question. And so first on the, the Senator Corker did say that, why, why do this if it's just going to be an intellectual exercise? And I said to him, and, and Senator Corker and I are really good friends, and we wrote the Re Iran Review Act together when the White House said, we can do this deal without Congress. We both said, no, you can't. And we wrote the Iran Review Act. Now, we're going to probably be in different places on the deal, but we're very close friends. But when he said this thing about why should we do this, it's an intellectual exercise, I said, um, never say those words in the company of anybody who's serving in the military or a military family. It ain't an intellectual exercise if you are one of the 3,500 
who are over in a theater war risking your life. It ain't an intellectual exercise. You know, to excise that from your vocabulary. <laughs> what he said, and I, and I get what he meant, is he said what I'm, you know, I, I think what he was trying to say is if we just retroactively approve what the president has done, say we just do that, well, then why go through it? I still think we're going through it for the reason General Dunford said. If we only said, yeah, we can do what the president has just done, what the troops get is the sense that the American public is behind them rather than Congress being indifferent to them. So at a minimum, we should do that. But you're right, there are dangers in, in going down the path of drafting an authorization. Senator Corker and Senator Cardin are institutionalists on my committee. They raised one. What if we start down the path and we can't reach an agreement and it, you know, partisanship gets in the way, then we really look disorganized. At least now, uh, um, our troops might think Congress is indifferent. We don't want to think Congress is hostile. So there is, there, that is a danger, although my perception is this. Since Congress so overwhelmingly supports military action of some kind against ISIL, we ought to be able to find a path, a draftsmanship path to get there. And then second, your point is, well, now with the two Republican houses, isn't there a danger that the only authorization that could compel support is one that's too broad? First, there's no circumstance under which it would be as broad as the current claim about the 2001 AOMF. And we all agree that any authorization for, this ISIL, for the war against ISIL would say the 2001 AOMF no longer applies. This is the sole statutory authorization for a campaign against ISIL. So the only thing we will do will be a narrowing. But I, I think we, are, we, are, we, we will have it within the range to do something that is a significant narrowing. Uh, and the authorization would sunset the 2002 Iraq authorization. That's a narrowing. And would probably start us down the path of also finding at least a procedure to narrow the 2001 authorization. So there, there are some dangers if we go down the path. Um, but, but I think the dangers of going down the path compared to the dangers of a year of executive war that really is without precedent. I mean, a year of executive war, I think, that, I think the relative dangers suggest that we ought to be making the effort, and I think we can find a solution. Yes, ma'am. My, na <clears throat> My name is Jennifer Joyce. <clears throat> I just have two questions. Could you comment, Senator, on ISIL's financial situation and our efforts to limit their access to oil resources. And the second question is, would you agree with reports that we're losing the propaganda PR uh, campaign against ISIL? Um, on the second one, yeah, I definitely would. Although, although I think we're catching up on that. But, um, you know, the propaganda information, the social media, we just, it's not a realm that we're doing that well in, frankly. You know, you know, back when we didn't have the social media and it was just, do you have a good radio-free Europe? You know, in the 60s, we were probably pretty good at it in the technology of the day, but in the 2010s, we're not. And that's exactly the kind of thing that really gets to be a, a victim of sequester and budgetary uncertainty. That's the kind of thing that gets cut. In the, in the sequester, in the budget caps right now, we hold harmless core warfighting activities. We hold harmless the safety net of Medicare and Medicaid, but we put everything else up for cuts, and that is exactly the kind of thing that you underinvest in, and we are losing on that. I think we're starting to realize it and catch up, and um, I would say a lot of nations in the region are also realizing that they need to turn to that to 
avoid young people from being radicalized and taken off the path. And so there's some good work being done in the region on that now too. And then on the first side, let's see, what was the first part of the question? Oh, financing. Yeah, the, the, there's, there's sort of nine strategy. The, the U.S. strategy against ISIL kind of has nine lines of effort, two of which are military, seven of which are, you know, social media and, and propaganda, and one of them is denying them financing. Now, their financing is the subject of, you know, a lot of debate, but, I mean, generally, uh, they've been getting funds from folks even including in, in nations that are allies with ours generally, although some of the nations there that had been funding them have stepped back from it, realizing that they kind of created a Frankenstein. Um, they have been grabbing money through knocking over banks and also just kind of extortion in the territories where they are, but they also have been uh, seizing oil and using oil and selling it. Um, there's often sort of a evidence of unholy alliances between them and the Assad regime, for example. They're selling oil to Assad, and Assad's probably using Iranian dollars to buy the oil. So there's a complex mixture of, of forces there. Um, but uh, I, I will just say that the, uh, one of the lines, nine lines of effort against ISIL is to disrupt their financing. And uh, price of oil being low is good. That's, that's something that's helpful. Um, and there's other strategies uh, engaged in that. I'm not, I'm not as focused on those as I am on some of the military dimensions, but, um, but, but, but that is a key part of what the administration defines as what, needs to, what we need to do to be successful against ISIL. Uh, let's take uh, one more um, over there. I'm known at NOTO, retired from the Congressional Research Service, unmentioned. I use, I use your stuff all the time. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back to the question about assuming that the American public is behind this and that the members of Congress want to go on record voting for it. People may have to help me remember the exact situation, but it was before ISIL. It was about Assad, and it was about... Obama wanting to um, send su military support. Yep. Somehow it was kicked to the Congress, you know, was going to have to vote. Just anecdotal evidence, two 88-year-olds that I know, mm -hmm. for the first time in their lives, they contacted their members of Congress in opposition, okay, to any American involvement, and that just the reference, you know, 85% of the the bombing and the air cover is from the U.S. Uh, I'm not so happy with the drone policy, and I don't think the American public supports American boots on the ground. I don't think they support the idea of having American soldiers, and I don't think many members of Congress want to have to vote and go on record for supporting that. So that's why I question your whole... Sure. Um, yeah, no, I, I certainly didn't say that members of Congress want to go on record. I completely agree with you. That's why, that's why we're a year and they haven't gone on record. What I will say is, if you ask members of Congress, even publicly, should America be engaged in military action against ISIL, at least three-quarters will say yes. They'll have their own thoughts about what the limit should be. But you will find very few who will say, no, American military should not be engaging in ISIL. And, and the, the American public is saying the same thing. The atrocities of ISIL uh, with respect to American hostages and others 
have put the public in support of, the American military should be involved. I think you're right. I think the American public would say, but we're not talking about ground troops. Airstrike campaign and training and assisting, that would be fine. Um, now, this, in that sense, this is very different than the Syrian situation. I'm on the Foreign Relations Committee in the summer of 2013. We come back early from a recess to debate the issue about whether the U.S. should use targeted airstrikes against the Assad regime for using chemical weapons against civilians in violation of the 1925 Chemical Weapons Convention. And I was on that committee, and that was the first time I'd ever been faced with the question about authorizing military force. I think the president did it exactly right by bringing that to Congress, because that wasn't an imminent threat against the United States that, that he could take action unilaterally under Article II. He brought it to Congress. We voted for it in the Foreign Relations Committee. I voted yes. It was a very narrow vote, but it was not a partisan vote. I think it was an 11 to 8 vote. With that affirmative vote, and partly because of that affirmative vote, we were able to get a deal where Syria said, don't bomb us, we'll give up our entire chemical weapons stockpile. Diplomacy and doing it the right way actually produced a positive outcome. It didn't stop the civil war in Syria, didn't stop atrocities in Syria, but it disabled one of the largest chemical weapons stockpiles in the world. Some people look at that as uh, an incident that was not successful. I actually look at it as an incident where the president followed the, con and Congress followed the rules and it led to an outcome that is is good for Syria and good for the region. So, but, but, but you're right in that sense, when I voted yes in the Foreign Relations Committee, the incoming calls overwhelmingly don't get involved. But I just don't think you can tolerate a use, mass use of chemical weapons against civilians and have there not be a cost to it because the general compliance with that convention has been very positive for the world, and it's been, it's been very positive for American troops in harm's way who haven't had to carry gas masks with them, you know, since, since World War I because of the general agreement of the world population not to use chemical weapons. So. Thank you, Senator Kane, and uh, thank you all for coming here to discuss this uh, important issue. Uh, you can join us upstairs at the second level of the George M. Yeager Conference Center for a cup of coffee. Uh, you go up the spiral staircase and restrooms, if you need them, are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. Thanks again. <laughs>